Thank you, church, for worshiping with us this morning. Indeed, we are friends of God if we have chosen to call him our Savior and our Lord. And we're going to look in Scripture this morning at how that takes place in our lives. And we're going to talk very clearly about the gospel today. Um, I want to introduce the, the sermon to you, and, and it's going to take a little while to introduce this sermon to you, so be patient with me. We will get into the main body of the sermon, but I want to take some time to, to set up this new series we're going to work through. Uh, but while I'm doing that, go ahead and open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. So last week we wrapped up our series in the book of Genesis, and, and I really enjoyed work, working through those chapters with you. A lot of that before sharing it with you was unfamiliar to me as well, and how all of it points to Jesus. So every week as I work through those passages, seeing God on display, seeing the gospel clearly presented to my life, it was an encouragement to me. Hope it was to you as well. But this morning we return to the book of Acts, and, and we're going to begin in the eighth chapter. And there's a reason for that. I know there are some folks with us now that, that might not have been with us uh, at the middle of last year when I came here as pastor. And so I want to kind of get you up to speed a little bit before we dive into the text. You know, we finished up through verse 3 of chapter 8 last year. And it was my first series of sermons here as your pastor. I went back and listened to some of those. Thank you for your graciousness and your patience and your love for me as your pastor. Um, I enjoyed preaching those messages. I probably wouldn't go back and listen to them again. Um, only one person's laughing. I thought that was hilarious. Um, but seriously, thank you for your graciousness, your patience as we work through those first seven chapters of the book of Acts. And uh, it's been my blessing and privilege now to be here um, for, for seven months. But I want to take a little longer with this introduction and explain to you why we're working through the Bible the way that we are and talk to you a little bit about what a series of sermons is, um, how we determine where we're going to go in Scripture and how we determine where we're going to leave off and start up again and all those kind of things because there is a rhyme and a reason to it. And I, I think I've kept this to myself, but I want to put it in front of you. So first of all, what is a series of sermons? Uh, a lot of times a sermon series can be organized around a topic or a theme or an idea. I hope that you've kind of gotten the picture now as a church that we organize our series of sermons around the narrative of Scripture, how God's Word unfolds to us, and we walk through even uncomfortable passages of Scripture for the sake of proclaiming the whole truth of God's Word. And you guys saw that plainly in the book of Genesis, right? It was at times very awkward, but we were clear to share the gospel from every bit of those 11 chapters. And so our series of sermons, although they have a title, um, organize themselves around um, what's going on in Scripture as a whole. And so we come this morning to this series called Be the Church, which leads me to this next question. Why do we pick up and leave off where we do in the Bible? Um, we finished at Genesis chapter 11 and suddenly we stopped. And maybe some of you were coming this morning thinking we're going to pick up at chapter 12. There's a reason we stopped. You see, every book of the Bible has some clear divisions in it, some clear progression in the story. And so we left off at chapter 11 because that closed out kind of a, a section of the story in Genesis. And so we'll go back next year at chapter 12, and uh, we'll kind of rehash some of this again. But we come to Acts chapter 8 and verse 4 this morning because we stopped at verse 3. 
There's a reason for that. To see that reason, I want you to look with me very quickly at Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. I've, I've read this passage to you many times, and it's probably becoming very familiar to you. But let me read it to you once more. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But you will receive power, we read here. When the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What we see here at the end of this verse is kind of a pattern for how the book of Acts is going to unfold. And what we've seen is in the first seven chapters, we saw that there was the birth of the church in Jerusalem. We worked through the events of Pentecost. We worked through a picture of what the church in its infancy was. And we got through chapter 7 and we saw the persecution of the church. And we stopped. And there's a reason we stopped where we did is because this morning we pick up at chapter 8. And we see this next pattern of ministry begin to unfold. You see, the church was born, we see in verse 8, in Jerusalem. But then their ministry extended where? In all Judea and Samaria. And then finally you find the ends of the earth. So we get to Acts chapter 8, working through chapter 12, and we see the ministry of the church taking place in Judea and Samaria. So we have this particular emphasis of ministry in the life of the church. By the time you get to chapter 13, all the way through the book, the end of the book rather, you find the ministry of the church to the ends of the earth, primarily through the ministry of Paul. And so with that in mind, you probably see that this series of sermons is going to go through just chapter 12. So we're going Acts chapter 8 through chapter 12, looking at this idea of what it means to be the church. And so we arrive this morning at this particular text and this particular sermon, and the, the title of this morning's message is this, Be About the Gospel. We're going to be about the gospel. Because you see, by the time we get to Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, we find the church at a bit of a turning point. We find that the church has been scattered because of the persecution of Stephen. We saw this take place right there at the end of chapter 7. Stephen preaches this great sermon, and as a result of the gospel-saturated message, people are offended, and they stone him to death. And so the church, out of fear for their lives, they begin to scatter, and they go elsewhere. And this church no longer necessarily has a place of meeting anymore. And they come to this place of trying to determine what is our identity, the church is scattered abroad and they say, okay, what are we really going to be about? What are going to be the markings of us as a church? With that in mind, would you stand with me and honor the reading of God's word in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. The word of God says this, so those who were scattered, they went on their way preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria, and he proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and they saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, they came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word. 
I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would anoint the activity here, that you would speak clearly and plainly. Lord, that in spite of our best attempts and efforts to prepare well, we know that without the anointing of your Spirit over the proclamation of your word, it is for nothing. And so, God, we ask you to speak to hearts, to challenge us and to encourage us. Make your word plain to us. And we trust in your promise that when your word goes out, it does not return void. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Again, we, we arrive at this turning point for the church, this opportunity for them to determine what is their identity. Who are they going to be? The church is scattered about, and because of fear, they've ran for their lives. But they are still the church. And so what, is gonna, what are going to be the markings of who they are? And so we have to ask the very same question this morning. We, as God's people, who are we? When we're going to say that we are going to be the church, what does that mean? When everything else is stripped away, what are the things that are going to be the markers and identifiers of who we are as God's people? How are we exactly going to be on mission? Again, we can dress all of this up with programs and ways of doing things and initiatives and all these different purposes, but at the end of the day, who are we as the church? We find a controlling theme working from chapter 8, verse 4, down through verse 25. And this entire passage we're going to be looking at this morning kind of frames up this, this big idea. And here's the big idea for you today. The gospel is foundational to the church's mission. The gospel is foundational to the church's mission. Look with me very quickly at verse 4 again. It says they went about preaching the word then look down at verse 12 it says when they believed philip as he proclaimed what the good news about the kingdom of god we get down to verse 14 and this theme continues it says when the apostles who were scattered at jerusalem heard that samaria had received the word of god again this is all framing this big idea that they were about the ministry of the word they were about the gospel we get to verse 25, and this passage closes with this. So after they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, the church was clearly about the gospel. The foundation of everything that we see taking place from this point forward, the foundation of all of that is the word of God. And so I challenge you this morning, church, the gospel must be foundational to everything we do as a church. Every song that we sing, every passage of scripture we unpack together, every Sunday school class you listen to, every activity we do in this community for the sake of reaching this community, everything is built upon the foundation of the gospel. We see the gospel put on plain display in three ways this morning. Three things that the gospel itself, that God is doing through this proclamation of his word. And the first thing that we see taking place is this. The gospel brings joy. The gospel brings joy. 
If you look at verse 8 of that passage we read a moment ago, look back there with me again. There's this very simple yet profound statement that we're given. So there was great joy in that city. You see, the Samaritans, they responded with great gladness because they had encountered the gospel and they had met God for the very first time. Now, it's kind of early to jump straight to application. I try to walk you through the passage itself first, but I want to jump to this truth for you. I want to ask you a question. It's a little bit abrasive, but listen carefully. Would you say that there is joy in our city? I look across the room at frowning faces right now. I know y'all smile, right? Some of y'all? A little bit? I even saw some people, when I asked that question, shook their heads noticeably. More than a few of you did that. Answering the question honestly that there is not joy in our city. But we see the marker of the gospel here. The evidence of the gospel at work is joy, gladness, happiness. Church, we have a tremendous opportunity in the midst of great sadness and despair to be used by God to cultivate joy in our city and our community. I want to illustrate this for you and why this is so important. And I've shared this with some of our leadership and I want to be careful as I share it with you. We, we just walked through the unfortunate occasion of having it announced that our beloved elementary school is going to close at the end of the next school year. This is heartbreaking news. Not just for our city and community, but for families that are represented here. We have teachers that are members of this church who are going to be affected by this. My family and many families here affected by this unfortunate event. I heard it said many times as we walked through that, as our argument after argument was presented to the school board and saying, you know, this school is the center of our town and city. It's the, it's the heartbeat of everything that happens here in Cave Spring. And I want to share this with graciousness, but also boldness, church. Listen carefully. We are called as God's people to be the heartbeat of this city. We are called by the power of the gospel to instill joy in the hearts of the people of this place. As heartbreaking as it is, as much as it saddens us to see this happen, it is a tremendous opportunity for us to declare with boldness and with gladness and with joy in our hearts that the gospel is foundational to our joy. I understand it's quiet in here after I said that. I know that it's challenging. It's challenged my heart over and over again. How do we bring joy into difficult situations? But I want you to see a couple of ways that we see joy cultivated through the gospel. The first way is this. There is joy when God sends out his people. There is joy when God sends out his people. We need to understand who God sends to do his work. And this is very challenging for us. Look at verse 4 with me again. It says, those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Now look back up at chapter 8 and verse 1. It says that 
after Saul had agreed to putting Stephen to death, on that day a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And listen carefully. All except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Did you catch that? Everyone except the leaders of the church, the clergy of the church, everyone else was sent out and scattered. God called ordinary Christians to do his work of spreading the gospel. The gospel, listen carefully, spreads most effectively and efficiently when God uses ordinary people for an extraordinary task. That's all of us together. That's not just pastors and deacons and staff members. Listen, church, it's us. We are the bearers of this truth. We are those who are called to be on mission. We see the church intentionally getting after this task in verse 4. Those who were scattered, not the apostles, not the clergy, not necessarily the leaders in the church, the ordinary people, the picture here is that they went about gossiping the gospel. They went about with the gospel on the tip of their tongue. It would be the equivalent of this. You walking into Southern Flavor Restaurant down here and you saying, hey, listen, you want to know why I'm so happy? It's because I know Jesus. You walk into the, the you drive through the bank drive through and they say, why are you so happy? Why is there joy in your life? You say, it's because I know Jesus. Do you know Jesus? I have no doubt that that is the picture of what's happening here. In the early church, ordinary people about an extraordinary task. Friend, God wants you to, to use you for the spread of the gospel. He has called you to this extraordinary task. But look at the second way that the gospel brings joy. The second way is this. There is joy when God destroys boundaries. There's joy when God destroys boundaries. When God goes a little bit outside the lines, so to speak. Look with me at verse 5 there of chapter 8. It says that Philip went down to a city in Samaria. To understand the impact of what's happening here, we need to understand exactly who the Samaritans were in the perspective of the Jews. Now, I will spare you the intricate historical details. I don't want to bore you to death this morning, but just know this. The Jews did not like the Samaritans. They were the enemies of their people. They were looked down upon, they were disenfranchised, they were marginalized. Jewish historical documents even describe them this way outside of Scripture. They were called dogs, they were called half-breeds, and they were called God's enemies. Make no mistake, the Jewish folks did not like the Samaritans, and the feelings were reciprocated. But yet, this is the first locale of the church's ministry outside of Jerusalem. When God scattered the church, the first narrative we get of the proclamation of the gospel is in this hard-to-reach, marginalized place amongst a hated group of people. Understand this, that many of the first Christians in the early church had converted from Judaism. They formerly were Jewish through and through. We're going to see later in Acts how this becomes a major divisive issue in the church. But for now, it looks like at least, they have laid aside all these prejudices and have taken seriously the responsibility of sharing the gospel among these marginalized people. But here's what I really want you to see. 
I want you to see how God himself had really primed all this activity. That it wasn't necessarily just up to an individual or a group of people to make this happen. God had already been much at work in everything that was taking place. I want you to remember that Jesus concentrated much of his ministry among the marginalized and the outcast. Many of his disciples, in fact, were those very people. But specifically, he ministered among the Samaritans. In John chapter 4, you may remember this story. Jesus has a life-altering conversation with a woman at a well. And guess who she was? She was a Samaritan. In Luke chapter 17, we find that Jesus, he heals a leper on his way to Jerusalem, no less. And guess what? He was a Samaritan. And then in Luke chapter 10, very startling and perhaps very controversial in the early ministry of Jesus, we find this parable that Jesus explains how only one person stopped to help this injured, beaten man lying in a ditch. Only one person stopped to help, and guess what? It wasn't a Jewish person. It was a Samaritan. We know that parable as the good Samaritan. You see how Jesus was clearly about this activity long before Philip ever arrived in Samaria. So it should not catch us by surprise when we get to verse 5. What was Philip preaching? At the end of that verse, we see that he was preaching who? The Messiah. He was preaching Jesus. He was preaching the one who had come before then we see these miraculous activities take place in verses 6 and 7. God is tearing down even more boundaries in Samaria. The lame, we see, would have been marginalized because of their disability, and yet they are being healed. In John chapter 9, we have proof of this marginalization of those with disabilities. We have this picture of people asking Jesus, who sinned for this man to be born blind? Was it him or was it his parents? You see, they tied these disabilities to a spiritual condition. And yet Philip is there healing them by the power of the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus did, to tear down these boundaries. Then, of course, you find the demon-possessed people. God is casting out demons. They're coming out, it says, screaming. This incredible picture of deliverance. In Mark chapter 5, we have a picture of how these individuals were treated as well. We find the story of the Gadarene demoniac, and he is in chains, and he is living among the tombs, among the dead people, because he's so marginalized. And yet, these very barriers, this cultural barrier with the Samaritans, and all of these barriers because of disabilities and conditions in their lives, God is tearing down each and every one. So we have to ask ourselves, if we're going to be about the gospel, church, I mean really about the gospel, if we're really going to be the church, it means that we have to intentionally consider that God has called us to minister among the very same marginalized and outcast people, that those who many would say have no hope or are not worth the effort, God has said, go there. Go among the hard-to-reach places. He asks us to tear down the walls in our calloused hearts to seek out to spread the gospel among those hard-to-reach people and places. So the gospel, it brings joy. The gospel brings joy when people go and when people go to those most starved of joy. But that's not all that we see 
about the gospel at work in the scattered church. The second truth we see in this passage is this. The gospel reveals truth. The gospel reveals truth, or it reveals what is exactly true. There seems to be a parenthesis inserted right here in the middle of this story, beginning at verse 9. I want to read all of this to you from verse 9 down through verse 13. Listen carefully as I read this to you. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city. He amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest. And they said, this man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed. And after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and the great miracles that were being performed. And so we have this introduction to this individual named Simon. Now, Simon, although he's given only brief attention in this passage, is given a lot more attention outside of the Bible. We find that some of the church historians talk about this guy. They call him specifically Simon the Magician or Simon Magus. And he was well known for the fact that he was performing these sorcerous activities. It says there in the passage we just read that many people had been amazed for quite some time. And in fact had given him this special naming designation. But I want you to understand what the church historians say about this guy. They say that it was more than just magic tricks. Again, none of this is found in scripture. So just hold this like a grain of salt, okay? But these historians say that he was a founder or a key participant in a specific religious system known as Gnosticism. Now, that's probably a brand new word to everyone in the room. Gnosticism was this religious system that taught that there was some kind of secret knowledge about God. That somehow knowledge or true knowledge of who God is, it rested only in a few it was this philosophical system that was very deep and hard to understand. And all it did was alienate people further from the gospel and draw glory and honor to mere men and individuals, which makes sense with what we're seeing happen here with Simon. Who does he draw the attention to here in this story? Himself. He's pointing to his own power, his own abilities, and how special he might have been. The title is even given to him in verse 10 that he was the great power of God. But here's the major contrast I want you to see in these verses. He pointed to himself, himself as great and did not point to God as great. We see that in verse number 9. The basis also of his fame was in his activity and not his message. We see that in verse 11. But notice what captivated the people in verse 12. Look at that with me. But when they believed Philip, as he did what? He proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and of Jesus. The people were not captivated any longer by a sign or a miracle or sorcery. They were captivated by the gospel. Why did this happen? I believe there are two reasons for this. And the first one is this. It reveals, the gospel reveals, what is truly needed in the life of a person. 
The gospel addresses our deepest desire to know God and to have relationship with him. Every individual, whether they are a child of God or not, they know there has to be something more to life. There has to be something or someone greater than themselves. And the gospel answers this deepest need. You see, the people did not need to see another magic trick. They needed the life-transforming power of the gospel of Christ. You see, church, I think sometimes we think wrongly that we have to somehow add something else to the gospel to make it appeasing or appealing to other people. We try to dress the gospel up in all sorts of things just to present it to somebody else. We try to use all sorts of means to make it appealing to the masses. And we're told very clearly here, the gospel, the gospel alone is sufficient to cure the deepest need of the soul. I'm going to share with you an illustration of how I've seen this to be true in my own life. Many of you know we were missionaries in the Philippines, and we served there for 18 months. And I'm going to be honest and come clean with all of you. We were not the best missionaries. We weren't. We were obedient. We loved Jesus. And we wanted everybody around us to love Jesus. But we were inexperienced, untrained. We were, you could say this, we were ignorance on fire. So here we were, loving Jesus, expecting everybody else to love Jesus too. And I remember the very first time I walked into the home of someone that God had said, this is a person you're going to share the gospel with. I walked in this home that was dirt-covered floors, barely had any food there, maybe some, some rice that was sitting up on the counter that had been sitting there maybe all day. It was all the food in the house and all the food that was going to be in the house that day. The clothes this person was wearing were perhaps the only clothes they had. I was surrounded for the very first time in my life, listen carefully, by real poverty, real marginalization, real distress, and real hurt. And I remember sitting there overwhelmed to the point of tears and thinking, how in the world, God, do I share the gospel with this person? Look at all of these things they desperately need. And I regret to tell you that day that the person with me had to share the gospel with that person. I got out of that home and I looked at this person who was with me and I said, I, I don't, it was a Filipino pastor, and I said, brother, I don't understand. I don't know how you just cut to the chase and started telling them about Jesus. Did you not see everything that they were without? And he looked at me and he said, brother, the gospel is the greatest gift you can ever give to anyone. The gospel is sufficient to save. The gospel is the greatest need of a person's life. We don't have to dress it up. When we're about the gospel, really about the gospel, we recognize the sufficiency of the gospel to change lives in an eternal way. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, we are told, because it is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God for salvation. So it reveals what we truly need but also, I want you to see that the gospel reveals what is truly great. The gospel reveals what is truly great. I want you to see how the gospel tears down who Simon is and all of his egotistical ways. You see this in verse 13 even. It says there that even Simon himself 
believed. And we're going to come back to this confession of belief in just a little while. But it seems as though, at least at this moment, that he has laid aside his ego. And he has recognized that something that this man is preaching named Philip is greater than who he is. If you're like me, you're inclined to think that you have to do something great for God for him to do something great. Anybody else like that? You think that if I can somehow measure up and do something spectacular, then people will listen. Friend, God is sufficiently great, and we are not. His message is sufficiently true when we are not. His gospel is forever faithful when we are unfaithful. Simon realized this even in this moment of fleeting belief. So the gospel reveals what is true. I want you to see this last truth about the gospel, the the last activity of the gospel we see in the life of the church and why they staked everything they did on the gospel. And it's this last truth here. The gospel brings power. The gospel brings power. The gospel is powerful. You see, we get to verse 14 and we see the apostles hearing about what is going on in Samaria. They know something interesting is happening there and the people have accepted we see the word of the lord and so we find that uh, they go down to samaria to check it out peter and john they head down that way in verse 15 it says after they went down there they prayed for them so the samaritans might receive the holy spirit because he had not yet come down on any of them they had only been baptized in the name of the lord jesus and then peter and john laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, this passage of Scripture is very difficult to work through, and and I I may work through it with you at another time, but know it, this at least to be true. That the gospel has come in a very powerful way in the life of this church. And as a result, the gospel is bringing with it great power, but there's a few reasons this is taking place at this particular occasion. The first reason is this. The gospel has brought power, and power is given for the flourishing of the church. It's given for the flourishing of the church, the furtherance of God's kingdom. The Holy Spirit is given to the church for its flourishing and for God's glory. This is why we read later on in some of Paul's letters as he talks much about the gifts that people are given and why they are given those gifts. Here's the key point of application, church. It doesn't matter what gift God has given you by the power of his spirit. It is meant to be used for his glory and his glory alone. And we see that taking place here in the early church. That's not the only thing that, or the only reason, rather, the power is given. Second reason is this. Power is given by God's initiative. Power is given by God's initiative. Remember how I told you a moment ago that Simon's belief was fleeting. That Simon's belief might not have been exactly genuine. Check out what happens in verses 18 and 19. And this becomes very clear. It says, When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. You see, Simon saw something spectacular beginning to happen. He said, hey, I want some of this. And so he took the thing that he had to offer, which was his money, and he put it before them. Verse 19, he, said, he continues to say this. He says, give me this power also so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon wanted 
to display this very same power. But here's where Simon got it wrong. You see, it wasn't up to Simon. It wasn't up to the apostles. It wasn't up to anyone else but God alone. It was up to God alone on whom he would bestow his spirit. You see, a core principle of the gospel is this. You and I have nothing to offer God but rags. We have nothing to give him that is of any value. We are helpless, hopeless, and hell-bound without the power of God through his gospel. You see, we don't bring anything to the table because it's, by, it's only by God's initiative that we're even invited to the table, church. There's no one righteous, not even one. Don't forget that we're dead in our trespasses and sins apart from God who can make us alive. But here's the third reason that power is given. Third reason the Holy Spirit is given. Power is given for the conviction of sin. Power is given, the Holy Spirit is given for the conviction of sin. I specifically pray this prayer in the life of our church every single week. And maybe you hear it and maybe you don't, I don't know. But I say something like this, God, unless you speak by the power of your spirit, no one's lives are going to be changed. It doesn't matter what I've prepared or labored over throughout the week. Unless God speaks, nothing happens. But here's the truth. God does speak. God does have power to bring the conviction of sin. Beginning at verse 20, we see this power clearly. I'm going to read this to you very slowly. Beginning at verse 20 down through verse 25, we read this. After Simon had offered this money, Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So after they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. This heartbreaking picture of this man confronted by his need, his real need for the gospel. You say, now wait a minute, he believed something just a little while earlier. It says there in the scriptures, he believed. But why was there no display of the Holy Spirit in his life? Why was he still coming with money, offering God something so that he would give him his spirit in return? I want to slow down here for just a second. If your version of the gospel has been based on anything beyond God's all-sufficient grace, it is not the true gospel. I'm going to say that again. If your version of the gospel has been based upon anything beyond God's all-sufficient grace in your life, it is not the true gospel. We're not told what happens in Simon's life beyond this moment, but I want to conclude here by offering to you an invitation. 
Church, listen carefully. I want to remind you that the gospel brings joy. The gospel brings joy. The gospel reveals what is true. And the gospel brings power. Are these the marks of the ministry of this church? Is God bringing joy in the lives of a city because of the gospel ministry of this church? Is God revealing what is true because of the gospel ministry of this church? And is God's power on plain display through the life of this church? If any of those, the answers to those questions are no, then we need to pray and ask God that we would be about the gospel. But the second question is far more individualistic than that. It points to your heart specifically. Maybe for the first time, someone in this room has been confronted by the truth of the gospel and their need for Jesus. And so I ask you this question. Are you about the gospel? You personally, is your life built upon the foundation of the gospel? Has the gospel revealed to you the reason for your lack of joy today? Is happiness eluding you? There is joy to be found in the gospel. Has the gospel revealed the truth of your real need for Jesus? Have you been confronted by the truth of the gospel? And finally, through the power of the gospel, have you been convicted of your lostness about Christ? It appears as if Simon walks away without Jesus that day. My question to you is this. Will you do the same?